It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host Eli Kurtz. Eric recently discovered his love of Kung Fu Panda, and I've been a fan since it came out, so it felt only right that we talk about it here on the podcast together. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I really, it was it was just kind of a re- revelation for me, and I'm just I'm just so excited. I, I don't think I've identified with a protagonist more <laughs> <laughs> than with Poe in this movie. So Poe's got a lot of good stuff going on. And you know, I I was almost hesitant to put it on our list because it's animated and because it's made in a Western studio, but I knew in my heart of hearts that it would be a good movie to discuss, and so I'm glad that we're finally doing it. But before we start talking about the movie, we should stop and thank our patrons. So without further ado, thank you, Brian Kurtz, Lowell Francis, Jason Detman, Derek Smith, Dave, Jared Rasher, Fraser Ronald, Todd Crapper, Jeremy Marr, Liam Murray, Sean Nicholson, Rob Abrazado, P.K. Sullivan, Misdirected Mark Productions, and Leonard Murphy. Thank you so much for your patronage. And for those of you who uh, have never been to our Patreon, let me tell you a little bit about it. We have a Patreon so that we can find a new way to engage with some of our uh, listeners. Uh, The money that we are raising, we're putting toward developing the RPG that we're working on together. And it'll help us when it comes time to paying for art for a Kickstarter or uh, when it comes to just, you know, getting layout and that sort of thing done. So uh, for those of you who support us on Patreon, thank you so much. For those of you who don't, that's totally fine. We are happy to just have you as a listener. Uh, We really appreciate you tuning in and hearing what we have to say. And we hope you're getting a lot out of it. Yeah, uh, you know, just thanks everybody for listening. But let's get that out of the way. And I think it's time to to noodle or not noodle on this movie. What do you think? (laughs) I think so. But I'm going to need to know the secret ingredient of these noodlings before we go any further. Uh, no, yeah, that comes at the end. Oh, okay. Well, fine. I'll I'll be patient. Inner peace. That's right. Okay. So, Kung Fu Panda came out in 2008. It was directed by John Stevenson and Mark Osborne. It was written by Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger. It has Jack Black as Poe, Dustin Hoffman as Master Shifu, Randall Duck Kim as Grandmaster Ugwe, Ian McShane as Tai Lung, Angelina Jolie as Master Tigress, Lucy Liu as Master Viper, Jackie Chan as Master Monkey, Seth Rogen as Master Mantis, David Cross as Master Crane, and James Hong as Mr. Ping. And you'll notice a few things in this list. First of all, we've got a lot of people working on this movie. Uh, It's a DreamWorks movie. But you'll also notice it's a lot of white people working on this movie, and we're definitely going to talk about that in the course of this but uh even though like face value it looks like it's a a very white movie and 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 it is in all reality uh it's kind of cool to look behind the scenes of the movie and see the ways that they tried to push for representation and cultural sensitivity and that sort of thing so we're definitely going to get to that eventually but first we should probably talk about the plot of this movie uh so to start off The very bare bones of this thing is that Poe is a panda in a world full of anthropomorphic animals, and he is on a journey to become a hero. 
Uh, the opening moments of the movie are an animated, a 2D animated intro that's pretty different from the rest of the movie. And we see the legend of a legendary warrior whose kung fu skills were the stuff of legend, as only Jack Black can say. And uh, he saves a tavern that's owned by some rabbit people from some Jang Hu goons. He unites with this group of legendary warriors called the Furious Five. And together they take on the 10,000 demons of Demon Mountain. But then it turns out it's all a dream. Because in reality, Poe is just a hapless panda who dreams of being a kung fu master alongside the Furious Five, uh, who are the peerless guardians of the Valley of Peace. But those dreams are beyond his reach because he is the son of a lowly noodle shop owner uh, who happens to be a goose. And this is really... Not commented on throughout the movie. It's it's a fun little bit that they do. But he tells his dad that, you know, he had a dream. And his dad was like, well, what were you dreaming about? And he says, well, it was nothing. It was about noodles he makes up. And his dad says, you really had a dream about noodles? And then he gets so excited because he, this is a dream that he had as a kid. And it's a sign that Poe is destined to uh, find greatness here in the noodle shop. And so... Through this innocent lie that Poe didn't really think would amount to anything, it's actually become, oh no, now I'm primed to let my dad down, and that's too bad. So, meanwhile, at the Jade Palace, the Furious Five train with their master Shifu until he's summoned to visit the Grand Master Uguay. Through a vision, Uguay has learned that the evil warrior Tai Lung will escape from prison and come seeking the Dragon Scroll, the key to incredible kung fu power. Ugwe says that the only way to stop Tai Lung is to find the Dragon Warrior, so Shifu organizes a tournament to test the Furious Five. But Poe is a huge Kung Fu fan, and he doesn't want to miss seeing his heroes in action, so he abandons the noodle shop. But it's too late. By the time he finally climbs up all of the steps to the Jade Palace, the doors are already shut. Uh, eventually, he blunders his way into the tournament on a chair covered in fireworks, he regains consciousness to see Uguay pointing right at him, and he's the new dragon warrior. Which is not at all a stressful revelation for pretty much everybody assembled. Right. So yeah, Master Shifu, most of all, is deeply disappointed by this revelation, and he swears to the Furious Five that he's going to subject Poe to grueling training until Poe quits. And in short order after that, we learn that Poe's determination and excitement are not easily broken. He overcomes some adversity. He's not any better at Kung Fu after the first few training sessions, but at least he starts to befriend the Furious Five with his cooking skills and his personality. Uh, but meanwhile, in the mountains somewhere far away, Tai Lung is in prison. And this entire prison is staffed with a ton of guards. It's got all sorts of weapons, and it's all just for him. And Thanks to an unhappy accident of this goose messenger who comes to alert the guard that Uguay has received a vision that Tai Lung's going to escape, uh, the goose loses a feather as he's going down to inspect the prison, and Tai Lung uses that feather to pick his locks and escape. Um, so Shifu finds this out, and he warns Uguay, who makes Shifu promise that he'll train the dragon warrior, but then... Uguay dies by disintegrating into a gust of peach blossoms. And uh, this is cause for alarm, but Shifu tries to take it well, and he goes and he informs everyone else. But Poe 
really doubts his skills as a novice kung fu practitioner. And while he's dealing with his kind of existential crisis, the Furious Five sneak off to confront Tai Lung before he ever makes it to the valley. It's a fierce battle. It's one of my favorite kung fu battles in all media. Uh, but Tai Lung ultimately wins, and the Furious Five barely escapes. I think uh, Crane is the only one who's not paralyzed by the end of this thing. Well, and they say that Tai Lung let them go. He could have he could have killed them all, but he let them go to to make everyone afraid. Mm-hmm. So while the Furious Five had gone on their quest, Poe and Shifu, who were both kind of going through a crisis uh, at the same time, they retreat into the mountains to train. Shifu realizes food is the perfect motivator, and so Poe's kung fu skills make incredible progress. They return to find the Furious Five battered and broken, so Shifu decides to give Poe the Dragon Scroll to unlock his ultimate power. But it turns out the scroll is blank. In dismay, Poe and the Furious Five help the village evacuate while Master Shifu confronts Tai Lung alone. During the evacuation, Poe's dad reveals the secret ingredient of his secret ingredient soup. It's nothing! Because for something to be special, you just have to believe it's special. Poe connects this wisdom with the dragon scroll and turns back to face Tai Lung. Poe arrives back at the Jade Palace just as Tai Lung is about to deliver the final blow to Shifu. Uh, Tai Lung turns out to be no match for Poe's unorthodox kung fu skills, and Poe's physique makes him uniquely immune to Tai Lung's nerve strikes. Nonetheless, Tai Lung does manage to rally, and he eventually obtains the Dragon Scroll, but he can't understand the meaning of a blank piece of paper. Uh, Poe tries to help, but Tai Lung just won't surrender. He's too far gone. And so Poe defeats him with the dreaded Wuxi finger hold, and peace returns to the valley, the Valley of Peace. It's not a complicated plot. Like, this is probably one of the simpler ones we've done. If you've seen a Zero to Hero story before. Mm Mm-hmm you know, stories that are about sort of believing in yourself and you can do great things. Like you're not necessarily going to be surprised, but I found that like the technique with which the story was told was more important than the novelty of the story. Yeah. What do you, what do you mean by that? If you strip it down, the story is, it's a sort of a standard, like chosen one, zero to hero kind of story where someone who is lowly, who doesn't believe in themselves, gets picked and discovers their true powers in time to defend everyone. And their true powers are just knowing that they're the person who has the skills that can do this thing. So your right. Harry Potters yeah. or or that sort of thing. And it's kind of a, a discovery of self worth or something. Yeah. And that and that you had you 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 always had it in, inside of you all all along. And it's like it's not an, like a super original story. But I think we overvalue original stories a lot. And I think this one is so skillfully told. And there are a lot of great things that happen within it. Like I think when we start breaking down like the little beats that happen, you will see where like the real touch that just instead of being sort of a hackneyed story that we had seen over and over again, is just a really like touching, effective story. And it's also a really great Kung Fu movie. Yeah. And, you know, um, talking about how it's not just a hackneyed kind of cliched thing, um, I I believe the studio originally had envisioned to produce this as a straight up parody, much like Kung Pao Enter the Fist or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the director pushed instead to make it a fairly straightforward Kung Fu Zero to Hero style, style story, but that actually had some Chinese cultural representation in it. And so while we mentioned earlier that there are a lot of white folks working on this movie, uh, this is a part where we can kind of start to talk about some of the representation and sensitivity that went into the movie as well. First of all, as far as the cast is concerned, there were four Asian actors who were cast. That's uh, Randall Duck Kim, Jackie Chan, Lucy Liu, and James Hong, um, all of which are really prolific. Uh, James Hong especially. Uh, he was, I mean, James Hong's uh, been acting forever. Uh, yeah. And and one of the things that I really liked about it is that uh, James Hong uh, as Mr. Ping and uh, Randall Duck Kim as Ugwe mm-hmm. are the uh, emotional heart of the movie. Like they're not necessarily the Kung Fu part of the movie, yeah. but they're the emotional heart of the movie. So I feel like they, they bear sort of the most responsibility for making sure that you care about the story. Oh, for sure. And I mean, personally, I think Uguay is one of my top five characters of all time. I love that <laughs> turtle so much from the very first moment when he comes down from his meditation and he's like, I've had a vision and he starts blowing out the candles one by one. It's, <laughs> it tickles me every time. But then again, like I, I told you this when I was watching it uh, earlier this week, like I giggle nonstop throughout this movie. It's just so, so good. But we're anyway, we're talking about representation and sensitivity. Um, in addition to the principal actors, uh, there's a woman who is involved by the name of Jennifer U. Nelson. And she was head of story for this movie. And she was also the director of the animated intro. I believe she is a South Korean woman, maybe South Korean American. I'm not sure, but one or the other. And... Um, while she was head of story on this and a director of a small part of the movie, she actually went on to be just the full stop director of Kung Fu Panda 2 and Kung Fu Panda 3. Um, but then other folks that were uh, pretty instrumental in the creating of the movie, uh, a man by the name of Tang Heng was the art director, and a person by the name of Yang Duk Jun was the cinematographer. Which, you know, you kind of think at first, well, it's an animated movie, there's no camera, why, why would there need to be a cinematographer? But still, establishing shots deciding where the camera or the digital camera is going to go. It's it's all still really important stuff. Um, and then beyond that representation of actual Asian folks working on a film about Asian culture, uh, there was also a really big effort to be sensitive in the portrayal of this culture that was not native to a lot of the people working on the film. For example, the soundtrack is from Hans Zimmer, but he studied music and culture in China for years before he started composing, up to and including actually working pretty closely with, I think it was the Shanghai Symphony Orchestra, uh, to develop the sound of the soundtrack. Also, the production designer and the art director researched Chinese art and architecture for years before making this. And on a larger scale, it's kind of interesting to see that from one movie to the next in this trilogy, they got a little better every time at representation and sensitivity because by the time Kung Fu Panda 3 comes around, fully one-third of that movie was produced in Shanghai by a group called Oriental Dreamworks, uh, which was entirely staffed by you know native folks from Shanghai. So we can see them sort of doing the things that I think you and I are looking towards doing. Mm-hmm. which is making sure that we are doing our research that making sure that we are including the people whose culture like we are interested in and we are interested in representing in a respectful way. 
Um, and I think when we get to the end of this conversation, we can talk about why Kung Fu Panda was so successful uh, about this representation. And I guess let's keep rolling and then we can kind of talk about our thoughts after that. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to say, too, I mean, it's not like Kung Fu Panda was an A plus in terms of how it handled this representation of another culture. But at the same time, I think it's a really cool example of people who did care about doing a good job and people who wanted to improve a little bit every time they made something new. It's very it's very informative and I think helpful to see that process and see people doing that work. Um, and, you know, to talk about its impact and its success worldwide, I know that the Chinese reaction to Kung Fu Panda was really complex and pretty fascinating, too. Uh, there were people who were railing against the movie, saying things like, you know, don't fool our generation with American fast food versions of our culture. But also a lot of studios or a lot of people over in China asked themselves why this movie is a huge success. It's artfully made, all this stuff. Why is it that our own studios can't create something like this? And we've seen, I think, since then, uh, there was that movie... <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. We saw a trailer of it a little while ago, but it was basically like Pokemon in China. And <laughs> and like that was that had really high production values. And I think it was a pretty big hit over in, in China as well. And like to see Chinese studios start to focus more on on their own stuff is almost like rising to the challenge or something. I think that's kind of a cool thing to see as well. Well, I mean, I think we saw sort of um, like a half hearted attempt when we watched uh, the newer version of Zoo Warriors for last show of like, we were going to make this big budget epic that's going to play worldwide and it didn't quite land. And mm -hmm. I think part of that is that the people who were in charge of making the movie took a lot of care in the soundtrack and the visuals and the fighting styles and the cinematography and the writing and all of that so that when they were done, they had a product that was, that was pretty respectful. It, 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 like we said, it's probably like a B plus or like an A minus, mm -hmm. but is also a good movie that doesn't necessarily like insult your intelligence or play up the, the, the negative tropes that come up a lot. I think we see a lot of that like inverted in this movie and they could still be playful with it, which I think is really uh, one of the things that the article that, that you linked to me about people wondering why we can't produce this coming out of China. And it's like, can we be playful with our own culture and why can't we? And like, what sort of responsibility do we have to be faithful versus putting out an entertaining product. Right. Well, and you know, you mentioned Zoo Warriors, and I remember in the last episode when we were chatting with Toby, he mentioned that, you know, from whenever we were watching our translated version of the movie, the characters' mm. names were like Red or Hawk or really emblematic and kind of iconic to who their character was and, and uh, not really respecting the audience's intelligence so much you know it was like dumbing things down to make sure the western audience got it and that is definitely a choice <laughs> but um i think that this movie is an example of like well maybe if you want to go for quality 
instead of trying to water something down for the sake of it being palatable to a, a really broad audience, instead consider just doing a good job of representing what you're trying to represent and telling that story faithfully, like you said. Uh, I think I think this is a really useful counterpoint to our discussion about zoo warriors in that way. I'm a little concerned that like as we sort of progress through this conversation that we're going to be like scaring people off because I know a lot of people that listen to the show and think about what we do here and and it's the same with us. We want to make sure that we're being respectful and looking at this stuff and doing the best that we can. But I don't like I think this movie is a real celebration of like what you can achieve from the outside. Mhm. And like that this more than anything is inspiring to learn about other cultures and to be both playful and respectful. And, you know, I mean, like you said, it's not like this movie is super complex. It's not like it discusses really detailed themes about Chinese culture, but the heart of Chinese culture is present in this film in a lot of moments, you know. Uh, it's kind of a light touch, but I think it's a it's a good example at the same time. Uh, for example, one of the one of the things that's really emblematic of Chinese culture in the movie is this idea of the animal martial arts styles. It's an anthropomorphic movie, and the Furious Five. You've got Master Tigress, you've got Master Crane, Master Snake, uh, Master Mantis, and Master Monkey, and in the Chinese martial arts system, there is a style called five animals martial arts, which is tiger, crane, snake, leopard, and dragon. Tai Lung is a leopard, and Po is the dragon warrior, so we've got all five of them right there. But then you also have separate related styles like southern praying mantis and monkey style. So in a way, all of those characters are iconic of a particular part of Chinese martial arts culture. And that's pretty cool. And in fact, related to that, the crew had a crash course in martial arts techniques and training to prepare for the film so that they could know how to animate fights and that sort of thing. And um, they definitely got a chance to learn not just the techniques themselves, but also how you train for those. And so even like the fights were well-researched, but so were the moments when, you know, Poe is like stretching out in the courtyard or when he's trying to actually learn how to condition his body to be able to perform these martial arts moves. Right. And I think that gives the people that are working on it a real empathy with the characters. Uh, and that I think that's the warmth that sort of comes through when you watch it, mm -hmm. is that everyone involved really loved the thing that they were working on mm -hmm. and loved that sort of deeper understanding that they that they got to have with all of this extra training and all of this extra education. And, you know, I mean, related to this sort of empathic approach to the movie you pointed out a really interesting observation to me that poe is a subversion of your typical male hero and that he's pretty gentle as an iconic hero uh do you want to talk about that a little more i was sort of joking at the top of the show that i've never identified with the protagonist more than i had with poe because he's a bumbling goof that loves kung fu and isn't good at it and and that sort of thing but one of the things that I really liked about this movie was that in Kung Fu Panda, the hero is, he he learns about himself, but he learns that, like, 
his way of being enthusiastic and gentle and making friends and all of these sort of non-toxic traits were the things that he needed in order to be the dragon warrior. I mean, you can see in his big climactic fight with Tai Lung that he, yes, he's trying to beat Tai Lung, but he's really like trying to make friends with him, especially at the end when the scroll is revealed to Tai Lung and he doesn't understand. And he's like, no, I, I get it. Like, I didn't get it either. So like, let's work through this together. And and I think we see Tai Lung as the, the sort of all of these like toxic qualities and, yeah. and Poe is the rejection of that. And he gets to be what I sort of termed as like an, a gentle iconic hero. So an iconic hero is a type of hero that solves problems by being themselves and they're really satisfying. So Superman is an iconic hero, at least classic Superman was an iconic hero. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, Conan, Conan solves problems by being Conan. If he's ever having a problem solving the issue at hand, the answer is to be more Conan. Yeah. He's got gigantic right. melancholies and gigantic mirth. And those two things are how he solves every single problem. Right. And he's, he's, he's like, no, I need to be a barbarian. I need to be uncivilized because that's the way that I solve problems. And Poe, he solves problems by, I need to be gentle and I need to be friendly and I need to be warm and I need to understand myself. And that's his iconic ethos, which I think is super fascinating. And it's not something that we see a lot, especially we don't see in Kung Fu movies because they tend to be pretty emotionally reserved Mm -hmm. and people are often unwilling to make themselves vulnerable emotionally. Like they would literally rather die. Yeah, well, and you know, I think I think Poe is the same way. It's just with an emotion that we don't often see in kung fu films uh, or wuxia. Uh, I think that Poe is determined. He won't give up. He would rather stay true to his ideals and die than sacrifice his ideals and go on living. It's just that his ideals are not violent. I'm trying to think. I don't think there's a single time in the movie when he lashes out in anger at anyone. And consider, you know, he is living a life that he doesn't want to live. He is chained, basically, to his father's noodle shop. And it's because of his father's enthusiasm that he can't leave. Because how can you let that down, you know? And then he finally finds out he's the dragon warrior. But all he gets is closed doors and criticism there. They're trying pointedly and explicitly to get him to leave. And he won't give up. But... He never gets angry throughout that whole time. There are times when he gets frustrated. There are times when he doubts himself, but he never lashes out in anger. It's almost like a Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi situation. He overcomes his violent surroundings by doubling down on this path of peace and gentleness. Right, and he spreads that to Master Shifu because Master Shifu is conflicted about his relationship with his previous student Tai Lung who's like fills sort of a a, a son role for him that he feels like he failed mm-hmm. and so he's he's constantly in in turmoil and constantly trying to prove himself again rather than just accepting like the failure and then 
and then moving from there. Yeah, we talk about, you know, explicitly, there's a point where Master Shifu is meditating and he's repeating the mantra inner peace over and over again. That's that's his character goal. He wants to find inner peace, but his entire life, he's only ever pursued inner peace through the avenue of discipline training to commit violence against other people. And I think Poe shows him that you can have those skills and and make use of those skills, but the important part is that you are not consumed by the violence that those skills give you access to. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's a thing that when we look towards designing this game, that making sure that characters have that like spiritual goal or spiritual direction or like emotional direction, which is kind of sort of the same thing in this case really matters because it gives so much like heart and direction to the character. And it also prevents them from acting in certain ways. Yeah. It reminds me of the conversation we had around Ip Man and, and uh, pacifism. You know, it, you need to find mm-hmm. a positive pacifism as opposed to a negative one. It's not, I choose not to fight. It's what is more important to me than fighting. And I think that it's a similar situation here where it's not necessarily that you need to have some sort of overarching spiritual thing to prevent you from doing something else. It's just that is your priority. A lot of deep thoughts in this kids movie. Yeah, no joke. Yeah. <laughs> Although while we're talking about kids movies, we there's a lot of stuff we can talk about in the gameable ideas segment. So maybe we should move on to that one. Absolutely, absolutely. So just to wrap things up, I think there's a lot to recommend this movie for people that are unsure of their sort of like wuxia and kung fu chops. We hear that a lot. And I feel like the warmth and the earnestness that this movie brings is something that like people should sort of strive for. And like, be gentle with yourself when you do it. Because you're coming from like, you come from a place like Poe is then I think that you can succeed that way. Yeah. 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 If you believe in yourself, even you can become the dragon warrior. (laughs) Man, I wish we could just end the show. Yeah, right. I mean, I really blew that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's do some gameable ideas because let's bring this, let's bring it to the table and let's, there's a lot of great stuff in this movie, just technique wise that Mm -hmm. we got to talk about. First up, this idea of, visually clear fights that are represented uh if you watch the movie i think i think a trained martial arts expert even would watch this movie and say like well you know it's just kind of martial arts that they're doing up there it's not like it's not like tigress is constantly using tiger style and it's not like monkey is constantly using monkey style or something they're all just kind of kicking and punching and it's pretty it's way more wushu than it is kung fu but at the same time there's a clarity to the animation uh, that I just really love. Yeah, it's it's so refreshing because a lot of a lot of action in action movies is so jumbled, and I tend I mean it's honestly one of the reasons that I tend to prefer a lot of the older movies is because mm-hmm. it's so much easier to see what's going on, mm-hmm. and like it lets me appreciate the the stakes and the back and forth between the characters. So how is this a gameable idea? We're talking about visuals, right? And I think there's a there's a couple of ways to bring this to the table. One is with your descriptions, that you can be descriptively clear, that you can make sure that you step back and you orient 
everyone at the table to what the scene is. So when I'm describing a scene, what I aim for is I, I'm constantly like zooming out to take the whole scene in and then zooming back in. And then when something happens, we'll actually like rewind and zoom out a little bit and then we'll take a look at it again. So, so what I'm saying is in my sort of belabored metaphor here is two characters are fighting, right? And we see, we see the exchange of blows as they fight back and forth and we see the dust kick up. And, and so then maybe what I'll do is I'll pause and I'll say like, here's what's going on in the scene. We see these two characters fighting. It's in this context. Then we go in, we make whatever roles or whatever we need to do that establishes the actual action of the, the mechanics. And then we say, okay, well, this happens. This person takes this much damage. This person takes this much damage or gets pushed back or whatever is, are the particular mechanics of the game. And then you can step back and you can say, okay, so what happened was, was the, the first fighter you know, jammed his hand out and hit the guy right in the solar plexus and it doubled him over and it pushed him back. And we see him slam up against the crate that we had previously established was in the scene. And then, okay, what do we go from, from here? And so it takes a lot, a little bit of extra work in terms of, it takes more words to make something really clear. And it takes a little bit of like playing with time but I think it really pays dividends, especially with action scenes, because action scenes at the table are kind of slow. Yeah. So you need to like make sure that everyone can really picture it and that they know where they are and what the stakes are. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a, I, I think I have a way to make a metaphor out of film cinematography mm-hmm. that will serve us. First of all, uh, when I first watched The Born Identity, I was blown away because it was a fighting style that I had never seen in film before. It was this really close-up, military, uh, efficient, brutal fighting style. And I thought that was so cool. Whenever he like picks up a book and uses the spine to punch somebody, blew my mind, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I watched that movie probably a million times when I was a kid because I was just so thrilled to see this fresh new take on stage combat. And then I got older... And I I started watching more and more different types of movies. And I'd already watched a bunch of Kung Fu movies by then, but I started to revisit those. And I realized that the thing I like about Kung Fu movies is the technique and especially the display of the technique. And the difference between these movies, I went back and watched The Bourne Identity, you know, five or six years after the first time. And I realized you can see the same thing in movies like Taken and a lot of Western movies, the action cinematography is all about really tight shots and really quick cuts and just a bunch of different cuts throughout the entire fight. And so you don't get a sense for the story of the fight. Whereas in a Kung Fu movie, the shots are usually a lot wider. They're usually a lot longer. And so you can see people going through entire sequences of choreography at a time. And by the same token, I think you said combat in RPGs is often pretty slow. And... I think especially about the more granular systems where you have a bunch of these specific combat options. You could use feng shui or Dungeons and Dragons or whatever you want. And you've got these techniques and you make these dice rolls and you see what happens. And and it's a really crunchy, zoomed in tactical experience of every single beat of that fight. But in that, 
there's so much dipping into and dipping out of the narrative that it can be difficult to keep a handle on what's happening on a broader scale. Whereas more narrative games, they have that wider shot perspective. They have that longer take perspective. And you can get a better sense of the story that's being told, but then you lose sight of the really granular details. And I think finding the balance between those two points is really important. And Kung Fu Panda as a movie finds that balance really well. Uh, the question is finding or developing a role-playing game that does the same thing, where you can have those wider shots and you can have that longer take that shows you the story, but you have enough of the shorter zoomed-in details to feel satisfied with your tactical choices in a fight. Right, and then the other thing that you could add to that is if you take something like Dungeons & Dragons that's not particularly maneuvery, like it's it's pretty it's pretty coarse, you know, a lot of times it's it's you know we roll a hit and we do the thing and and then we move on. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to take a second out from that tight born style framing and then step back and be like, okay, well, what did we see? What did we actually see? Mm-hmm. And then that gives the the story and the combat a little bit more uh, momentum. And the it's a really nice thing to be able to go, okay, well, we just saw this person smash this guy in the face with his shield and and push him back and he tumbles backwards over a table. All right, you, what are you doing now that this scene is happening in front of you? And it gives you a place to like latch into that scene. Yeah, and just like you said, uh, whenever I'm running one of those crunchier games, at the very least, at the end of each round, I'll usually summarize what happened throughout the course of the thing. Maybe not you know, citing hit points and that sort of thing, but at least saying like, okay, so you did this to this guy and you did this to this other guy. And then you ganged up on the first opponent uh, to help out the first player. And this what ha- this is what happened. Now everybody's here and let's continue on with the next round. Uh, I think that's really helpful. And I think being able to zoom out like that is what saves those combat moments from getting just totally lost in the details. Right. Just getting lost at like the game level. It's, it's, mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's great and I would recommend people do is watch these movies that we recommend and start building a language for describing those things, mm-hmm. uh, especially because these movies, the violence is so much clearer. It's so, so much slower and it's better described visually that you can take that and you can turn that in. You can learn how to turn that into words. Mm -hmm. And then you can apply that at your table. Yeah. And, you know, while you're watching these fights in film, uh, one of my favorite things to do, especially when you find a film that has that really good action cinematography, is to watch the scene in slow motion and really Mm. see, oh, yeah, the person put their foot down here and then they use the power of that stance to drive their punch here. And then the other person blocked and did a backflip or whatever. But slowing it down lets you see that beat-by-beat representation of the entire fight. Uh, And it can be really helpful when you're trying to build a vocabulary for yourself. Right. And that's about the speed that it's going to play out at the table. So it's perfect. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing that this movie does really well is lowering the stakes, so to speak, to create safe combat. And I think this is particularly useful for a kid's game. In the movie, we see, you know... Poe complains about training and he says that he's got sore biceps. He doesn't say that he's got like, you know, a broken tooth, which also happens in the movie. It's just not the thing that is focused on. 
there there are all sorts of examples of that. Even when you're fighting the really big bad guys, it's like, oh, they get paralyzed. They don't get skewered on a, a sword or something, you know? Right. Or Poe gets humiliated. Poe gets pushed into this training hall gauntlet. It's got these rotating ropes and fire that shoots up and these spinning wooden men that have spikes on them and this huge iron bowl. And he just wheels through it like he's the the ball in a pinball machine. I mean, they literally make that noise. Yeah. Uh, and he's getting he's getting beat up every single way, burned, shot up into the air. Everything happens to him. And the, the consequences of that is that he's humiliated. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's dead. It's not even it's, that he has to wear bandages for a few days. Mm-mm. And it's it's also that it reinforces other people's perceptions of him as being useless. Mm-hmm. And that's the consequences. Those That's how they lowered the stakes. And honestly, I think that's raising the stakes. I mean, we say lowering stakes because we're so used to talking about physical damage as the end-all, be-all of what you can do to a character. Like, the worst thing you can do to a character is kill it. And you're like, well, that's nonsense. Everybody that I know would almost certainly rather, like they say, I would rather die than be humiliated in some particular way. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fate worse than death trope is really common. So I think you can really do a lot, especially in these movies, that it's hard to progress a story, especially with because there's so much combat in in these in these stories that we love so much and it becomes if you use sort of a hit point model it reduces the the plausibility of these uh of continuing continuing on through the story and this one it's really great because he is he's taking cartoon levels of violence greater than we've seen in most of the movies except for kung fu hustle mm-hmm. um but his consequences are they're emotional and uh and so it makes it safe but it also makes it a but there are still consequences absolutely yeah one thing that i wanted to hit on and i love seeing this when it pops up in some of the movies that we watch is poe is sort of falling into the the fool archetype we've seen it in a bunch of movies that we've watched um it's often a place where a kung fu master hides uh, is under the the archetype of the fool, and they are a character that, in a more sort of plausible movie, gets to get away with being cartoony. Uh, and it's one of those. It's one of my favorite sort of like melodramatic things that can happen. Uh, there is was it Master Bo in Crouching Tiger? Yeah, <laughs> the comedic relief character with the He's the comedic relief character and he go he goes up against, you know, one of the villains and he basically gets clowned on, mm-hmm. right? And and manipulated and made to look stupid, but he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And Poe is sort of like what if we took that and we made that the main character, I mean that that the hero of the story? Yeah. Um, which is a really nice like inversion of it. Well, and especially um, right at the beginning of his training, it's a it's a question of scale too. His scale is so much lower than everyone else's that there's no possible way he could suffer a lethal consequence for engaging with them. Right. It has to be comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And but it's a nice thing to bring in as like an NPC or a player character um if you have a kind of system that has that sort of flexibility to it. Mhm. 
that operates on a slightly different narrative wavelength than everyone else mm-hmm. because it heightens it sort of heightens everything uh and it was it was nice to see this is very much like we're going to bring it we're going to put it out in front but uh something like master bow or you'll see this a lot in where someone has to go train with like a crazy old master mm-hmm. and they they operate on a level that is slightly different it's a nice beat to hit in your storytelling yeah and something that i forgot to point out whenever we were talking about poe's gentle nature but i think it's important uh and it fits here just as well it's important to note that poe is a fool archetype and poe is a gentle archetype but i think he deftly avoids becoming a man-child archetype uh and it's kind of natural to assume that that's what he is if only because jack black is pretty commonly uh playing those kind of roles but what we see of poe is that he works at this noodle shop and his size is a problem for him but otherwise he knows how to serve the tables he can carry six bowls at once uh we he gets to the jade palace and it turns out he's a really good cook he can do his dad's secret ingredient soup uh from scratch without any you know, recipe to follow or whatever, and he does it just as well as his dad does. He's actually really competent at everything that he's experienced at. Uh, and he bumbles around in the in the dojo, of course, but that's because he has no experience there. It's not necessarily that he's a man-child. It's not necessarily that he doesn't want to grow up in that way, even though he has action figures and what have you. Uh, it's just that he finds himself on new terrain and he's adapting to that. And while he's being comedic and while he's being a fool, he's not being immature about it. And I think that's a really cool representation of that particular kind of masculinity as well. I think that's excellent. I think the other thing that he is not is that he's not entitled. Mm-hmm. He's not entitled to the martial arts training Yeah, as from getting picked as the Dragon Warrior. Yeah. He's just glad to be there. He, he has to. He's just he's just so excited to be mm-hmm. there. And he knows that, like, not giving up is the way to do this. And, uh, but he doesn't demand that everyone give him the attention that he needs. Yeah. He's a good role model, Poe. Yeah, it's really good. He, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things that I really love about this movie, uh, is this idea of combat as a way of learning secrets. There's an exchange when Poe is training, and it's the first time that he faces all the Furious Five in combat, and he keeps getting his butt kicked, but then he's he keeps like, yeah, let's keep going, let's do it again. And Shifu's like, fine, your next opponent will be me, and the Furious Five is just like, oh no. And Shifu immediately starts just taking Poe to task, and he says, the true path to victory is to find your opponent's weakness and make him suffer for it, to take his strength and use it against him until he finally falls or quits. So this is two separate ideas. The first one, discovering your opponent's weakness, is the path to victory. The second one, take your opponent's strength, not his weakness, and reverse that strength. Use it against him until he finally falls or quits. Those are two really central concepts to this entire genre. We can see it time and time again um, in just about any movie we would care to cite. And then Poe's response is totally in keeping with the Shah. He says, but a real warrior never quits. Don't worry, master. I will never quit. Earlier in this discussion, even, we were talking about how the Shah values XYZ more than the Shah values his own, his own life. And Poe is saying, 
No, you will. It doesn't matter what weaknesses you find in me. It doesn't matter how you turn my strengths against me. I will never fall and I will never quit. Uh, don't you worry about me. That two-line exchange is so potent. It smacked me in the face this time that I watched it. Because I, I was telling my wife, I don't think I've watched this movie since we started recording the show. And it was really cool to come back to it after all of this conversation that we've had. <laughs> and to be like, whoa, look at all these themes. They're themes for days. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the way that you pulled that apart. I hadn't thought of like the 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 weakness and the strength as like aspects of the enemy that you need to, that you need to learn and use against them. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I was so overwhelmed by like post joy because that's what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, he won't quit. Yay. But no, I think you're right. I think that there is a real like narrative way to understand this, like beyond the fact that uh, like, this is what a Shaw should do. Mm hmm. That there are ways to unpack what Master Shifu is saying in a way that you can apply to the narrative of your stories. Mm -hmm. That's that's really strong. Yeah, this idea of like when you're training, what you need to be doing from a meta perspective is reinforcing the themes and goals of the story and characters respectively. And when you're fighting, you are applying the themes and goals. Uh, that's a really cool dichotomy. But... To talk a little bit more about this idea of discovering your opponent's weaknesses, um, this is something that we'll tease out a little more during a side hustle episode. But uh, Quinn Wilson on Twitter, he's the host of the recently concluded Swallows of the South podcast. He, a few months ago, had a thread where he was talking about this really common trope, and he was citing anime, but it's common in Wuxia as well. This idea that in order to win, you have to learn something about your opponent and and like secrets are not a resource to be managed but or like a bonus to be accrued but they are a milestone to reach before you can find victory and that's right front and center in this exchange between shifu and po this notion that like you have to you have to find out where your opponent is weak and then you that's that's what you exploit but the finding out is the action of that uh, task, right? Right. Uh, and the thing that I was sort of taking from it was, you know, I was thinking about like, oh, if I GM'd this story and like Tai Lung was your big bad guy, but we, we did this, we did this training montage and we have, we could say like, okay, well, Poe, like, what are you bad at? And we could, we could have a little scene where we exemplify you like showing off that you were, that you were bad at it. And that then the master comes in and like, you guys, you two work together to figure out how you get trained in order a way that like turns your weakness into a strength. But then over here in your little GM notebook, you're writing down the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> you're writing down how does, how does this newfound strength become a weakness for the bad guy? Or how does it turn their strength into a weakness? How do I make, uh, how do I take these, these things that I'm discovering about my main character and I'm over here quietly building the bad guy as a foil for uh, for the main character. So that when they finally meet, we can have that really satisfying thing where you're like, no, this is this is what I learned. This is what I trained for. And we get to see that in this movie. And it feels it doesn't feel contrived. It feels really uh, organic and like it rhymes. Yeah, it rhymes. You see, it rhymes. 
Um, That's right. <laughs> no, and I really like this notion too that uh, you're kind of setting up a quantum antagonist situation where there is no stat block for the antagonist or 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 what have you until you get to face him in the final battle, and it turns out that the antagonist is, like you said, a foil of yourself. But this quantum antagonist situation is not one where the characters where the player characters are robbed of their agency. You have right. a villain that is being built during the story and the players can make whatever decision they want. It just so happens that you are tailoring the villain to exemplify the decisions that the players make throughout the story. And you can take it and you can show how, you know, especially earlier on how the player characters weaknesses are magnified according to the the bad guy's strengths totally well and you can also see in the movie how the lessons that poe learns throughout or the the ways that poe discovers to overcome obstacles become the techniques that he uses in the final fight so for example uh there's a there's a moment in the final fight where he gets knocked back into a, a cart and he kind of comes to after recovering from this blow and he realizes that the cart is full of fireworks and he's like ah okay so he lights the fireworks he gets on the cart and he uses the fireworks to rocket the cart toward tai lung and attack him with fresh energy and this is exactly like poe using the chair strapped with fireworks to get into the tournament at the beginning of the movie uh, that's a lesson applied explicitly and it's a it's a pretty potent lesson too right there's a really nice part where Master Shifu and Poe are training and Shifu is using food as the motivator and he has a little bowl of dumplings and he's like, you go ahead, you can eat. But every time Poe tries to grab the dumplings with the chopsticks, Shifu is too fast for him mm-hmm. or he's too tre- he's too tricky. And so they end up having this pitched battle with chopsticks over the bowl with one dumpling in it. Uh, and the the bowls end up getting flipped over and rearranged, and and the chopsticks end up getting used in an unorthodox way. And then when Tai Lung and Po are facing off in their final battle, there the dragon scroll gets sort of lost between them, and it mirrors this dumpling battle with the chopsticks. And it ends up that there's a bunch of walks around from the from the carts, and there's a bunch of bamboo poles, and we end up having a larger version of that previous scene yeah. it's another direct reference to earlier in the movie and then you've got right at the end when it seems like poe is finally defeated by tai lung tai lung is like ah now i'm going to use my nerve strike attacks against you and he tries to hit poe but he can't get through poe's body fat and it's actually even ticklish for poe and you can see the same sort of visual effect where tai lung's like blue energy is hitting poe but it's just dissipating immediately and this is I think a callback to the moment after Poe's early training when Mantis is trying to do the acupuncture needles on Poe, but he can't figure out where his pressure points are because he can't get under the body fat to get there. And whereas that was kind of a weakness earlier in the movie, it's been transformed into a strength here because it's all of a sudden a really effective defense against Tai Lung's most powerful technique. Right. And then there's one part where at the beginning, when Master Shifu doesn't want anything to do with Poe, he puts him in the wuxi finger hold, which is just a little pinch with the pinky mm-hmm. out. And Poe knows what it is, and he's terrified of it. And he's like, he doesn't want he doesn't want the master to put his pinky down because it's going it's 
the consequences are so severe. Mm-hmm. And we never see him learn this technique. But at the end of the movie, when, when Tai Lung does his final retaliation, Poe puts him in the wuxi finger hold. And because he's such a fan of Kung Fu, he has learned this on his own and is able to use it on Tai Lung to, to save the day. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So like, let's, let's real quick and go back through these. So the rocket chair is Poe's sort of like unorthodox way of thinking about like obstacles. Mm-hmm. Right. The chopstick battle is like a direct result of training. Yeah. And his relationship to food. And his relationship to food. The nerve strikes are kind of taking, it's kind of a callback joke mm-hmm. that ends up being a strength. Uh, and then the wuxi finger hold exemplifies his enthusiasm. Yeah. And turns that into the strength that ultimately defeats Tai Long. Yeah. Those are like the four core character traits of Poe. And we see them set up earlier in the movie and then fulfilled in the final battle. And it's just so satisfying. Right. That's pretty good. Yeah, I know. It's it's good storytelling. Um, the last gameable idea I want to talk about is something that I think is a technique that could make for more sensitive uh, storytelling. So the entirety of this movie, I mean, there are moments when they go to the prison in the mountains. There are moments when they have this fight on the bridge. Uh, but generally, the entire movie takes place in the Valley of Peace uh, with the Jade Palace perched just above. It's a really small setting, all things considered. And I think that helps the movie to avoid getting entangled in, you know, like national politics or big army stories and stuff like that. Every time the movie has a chance to broaden its scope and go out to a wider group of people or something it it's a pitfall potentially because it's one way that you could fail to represent something with fidelity but by focusing on this small area you can instead focus on the people of the story and you can focus on their narrative arcs and when you're doing less world building and more character development it's a lot easier to avoid problematic storytelling tropes and that sort of thing yeah, and you could really focus on making the npcs real people mm-hmm rather than stereotypes. Yeah, I'm running two campaigns right now. And in one of them, it's a big, like, go all over the world and explore things stuff. And you're meeting new people all the time. In the other one, it's a much more tight and contained story. And with the big campaign, the world is definitely the character, the primary NPC, you know. Uh, Any Mm -hmm. other NPCs that they come across, it's like a a once-per-session thing or just-for-one-session thing, and then they're gone forever. Whereas, like, the more focused story... They have the players have a chance to get to know those characters and and really find out what makes them tick and what makes them a little more real. Yeah, I've used the same technique uh, actually in a Wuxia game. I ran uh, Tian Sha and I made a little like area of the map that like wasn't that well defined, and I made a little like series of small uh, five very small towns that were connected by the river. And they all had a little bit of like character to them, but they were also all represented by a couple of NPCs. And so they acted as sort of like one slightly larger location. And what it did was it really like focused the action inside uh, that space and made the NPCs more important. It made the actual geography more important. Uh, and it made, uh, because I had, this was before we started on this whole project, uh, it made everything a little bit more authentic. Uh, where it could have fallen into kind of troubling pitfalls. 
I like it. So now that we've talked about like our particular games that we've run with these techniques, uh, let's talk about like bits from other games in our stealing as art section that we can pilfer from other games to get that that wuxia flavor into whatever we're running. The first one I want to mention is Swords Without Master. And I want to mention it first because we have decided off air that we are going to phase out some of the games that we keep citing over and over again. Everybody knows at this point that we really love Swords Without Master and Blades in the Dark and like two or three other RPGs. Um, they've gotten plenty of attention on this show. We know that there's a lot of carryover between them and the wuxia genre. And we're going to let them go for a little while and train on their own mountaintop. And we're going to find other games to highlight in this section. But the thing that I could not help but mention is Threads and Swords Without Master. Because Lessons is foreshadowing, the rocket chair, the chopstick battle, all that stuff. That is exactly what it looks like when you reincorporate a thread in Swords Without Master. Oh, absolutely. It definitely was like, oh, I really liked this these fireworks that you added earlier. Let's reincorporate this later in the story. And it just ties it all up so neatly. Mm -hmm. It's so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good job, Epidiah. Yep. But again, look, we love Swords of That Master. I really want to thank uh, Jason Cordova. Uh, he sort of put some thoughts in our brains about like the games that we talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that maybe we should be broadening our, our scope. So... Um, we're going to talk about a couple more and then we're going to move on because we've got some really great comments. But uh, a lot of this I thought was similar to um, discoverable aspects in Fate. I thought that that is a way that you can sort of partially mechanize what we saw earlier with Poe's training. That when uh, what we are learning about Poe in those scenes is not is we are learning about Poe but we are also discovering the aspects of Tai Lung. And Tai Lung is maybe sort of like a mix between the aspects of Po and the aspects of Master Shifu. Absolutely. He's, he's a combination. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because Shifu, we see that he treated Tai Lung like a, like a son, and then Tai Lung betrayed him, and he never treated anybody that closely again. And we see that because a little Master Tigress is doing the exact same thing that Tai Lung did, but Shifu all of a sudden has no warmth for her. And um, he was changed as well. I don't know if, if that's like a shifted aspect or what, but it's interesting to see those play against each other. Right. Yeah. It's And um, I, I think you could you could enforce it mechanically uh, in, a, in certain ways that you could you could take. You said, oh, you want to discover an aspect about the the villain through training. And part of that is, is taking an aspect that you have and then inverting it or it's, you know, you manipulate it somehow. So it's, it's slightly different, but it, it gives you some leverage on that character or um, you're building up those aspects for later for when you go into the, the big battle. And then you can you can tag all those aspects and use the, the bushy finger hold there at the end and solve the problem in one final skadoosh. <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> all right the last thing i want to bring up is i've talked about this before but golden sky stories uh is a game about sort of heartwarming stories and the thing that i love about it so much is there is the dreams mechanic if someone is being cute or helpful then the other players can give them uh an in-game resource called dreams um and other sort of pastoral games have their own ways of of dealing with this 
But I think that a way of encouraging this kind of like non-toxic behavior is really great, uh, especially if you're going to run kind of like a kid's game or a lower, a lower violence game. Uh, if you can kind of like pilfer that idea, because then what you do with that is you take that, those, those resources and you, you strengthen your relationships with other people. So we can see like, oh, the player that's playing Poe gets a bunch of these dreams and he starts establishing relationships with Mantis and uh, with Snake, right? And then it like sort of spreads out from there. So that's a really nice way of, of reinforcing behavior and then funneling it towards the behavior that you want to see. Yeah, I like that. You said it's like a dream mechanic in Golden Sky Stories? It's called dreams. And it's just tokens that like, if you're playing a character in a way that um, is, is heartwarming, the other players give you this these tokens. Cool. And then when the scene is over, you can spend those. Nice. Um, and it, yeah, it's really good because it really like, it makes even the most curmudgeonly player go... Well, I want these tokens. <laughs> so I best I guess I better be cute. Yeah. Right. And so, <laughs> nice reinforcement of the theme there. It's 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 really good. It's a um and I think it's a technique that that, that does exist in other games. I think it's in um Primetime Adventures and that sort of thing is fan mail. But I think we could see that really done even more in a lot of games. So think about like how you can reinforce the behaviors that you want to see and then turn that into an economy that funnels back into the story. Yeah. So should we move on to some comments that we've collected? Let's do it. We've got, uh, we have not a lot, but uh, they are meaty and I am looking forward to them. Yeah. I want to start off with this one from Ryan Swan over on Google plus. He commented on our uh, last episode. He said a few thoughts on the latest episode. Maybe use the same mechanics to adjudicate social interactions as you use to adjudicate combat. Roll to hit their pride or use an attack skill check. It might help balance action and drama. Also, you might consider resolving drama and action on the same scale. As you take more damage, you need to spend more time raising the dramatic stakes. Then as those get too high, you get into a fight to relieve the tension. Heal HP with drama, heal social stress with combat... The scale could go from zero, maximum damage, socially neutral, to 10, full health but stressed out. On the subject of Immortal Heroes subgenre, perhaps use different advancement tracks for different genres. Immortals might level up based on reincarnations, detectives on mysteries solved, comic relief characters on table consensus, and mortals on brushes with higher scale characters. Love the show, keep up the good work. When's the next side hustle coming out? <laughs> that's, hey. a, that's a good question, Ryan. <laughs> I'm really glad that like one person likes the side hustles. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Well, and he couldn't have asked at a better time either because we actually are recording two side hustle episodes very shortly. So yeah, those yeah. Will be I'm looking forward to it because enough. our lives have just been really crazy. And so we haven't been able to like, We've been able to keep the podcast, the the regular podcast going, but the actual like work on the game has had to take a backseat. And I'm hoping that that is coming to an end or at least a middle. Yeah. Well, and yeah. either way, I mean, even if things continue to be busy, we're both chomping at the bit to start doing some actual design work on this thing. And so we've we've prioritized side hustles again, and we'll make sure that mm -hmm. we start putting them out. 
a little more frequently. I know the last one came out like four months ago, and we certainly don't want to wait that long again. No, absolutely not. Yeah. All right, but, so thanks for your interest, Ryan. Yeah, and, and to address <laughs> really the things that he it. said, I was so glad to see him suggest using the same mechanics for social interactions and combat because my thoughts on the on the core mechanic of this game, which again, we'll get into more on the side hustle episodes, but um, my thoughts are that essentially social encounters and combat are handled with the same mechanics. They're just reskinned to be different words or something. Uh, to be appropriate for the situation. There's definitely, like, I know of some systems that handle it this way, and it's always, it's so nice when that happens, because it's not just, like, I'm the better talker in real life, and right. so therefore I get my way. Right. And so I, I'm really, I'm, I'm looking for a way, just like Ryan says, to balance those two things, both the action and the drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the things that he's talking about are, are really smart, and talking about, like, different um he's kind of what we're talking about like different xp triggers or different like resource triggers yeah what he said about immortals might level up based on reincarnations etc etc reminds me of some powered by the apocalypse games where the playbooks have specific xp triggers built into them so you you level up by exemplifying your character uh that's another thing that i had planned to suggest during our design process so it's cool to see him mention it there the one thing i didn't consider before is this notion that you've got these two pressure cookers social and action and as one of them builds up you have to invoke the other one to take that steam off but then when you invoke that other one that one starts to get more pressure built up and then you eventually have to go back to the first one to cool that one off and so it's a balancing act in that way too uh that's a yeah that's really nice yeah that's a really cool idea and it's in keeping with most of the stories we've watched too i think that's really smart i think if you can get that like that good tension or that thing where you can go and you can you can do the social thing so that you can then unload into the next you can roll into the next scene at your at your maximum power mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah, I think it's really great. So thanks so much for the uh, comment, Ryan. You've given us a lot to think about, and you've guessed at a lot of things we were already thinking about. So you're just a smart cookie. <laughs> Another smart cookie uh, is Lowell Francis, and he sent us a message on Patreon, a pretty lengthy one. So I may uh, kind of skip through this. I hope you don't mind, Lowell. But he says, it's been mentioned before in connection with LGBT characters in wuxia films, but I wanted to point out Dong Fang Bubai from Smiling Proud Wanderer. That's one of Jin Yong's novels from the late 1960s. It's been adapted multiple times, seven different and distinct TV series and four movies, including the Jet Li's The Swordsman 2, uh, which... Uh, Brandon brought up uh, a couple episodes ago um, yeah. in, the, in the comments. I was just re-listening to that. Uh, it's certainly not a positive depiction, but it's one that's more complicated than other presentations. In particular, Bridget Lynn's portrayal of the character as more trans uh, had some significant sort of cultural resonances. Lowell continues, The Wikipedia page gives good summary of Invincible East and their character. The relevant points are... His castration and supreme prowess in martial arts make him one of the most memorable characters in Jin Yong's Wuxia universe, though he appears in only one chapter of the novel. His name has also become virtually synonymous with homosexuality and LGBT sexual orientations in Chinese popular culture. But also, quote, Bridget Lin portrayed Dong Fang Bubai in the 1992 film Swordsman 2, a sequel to The Swordsman. The plot differs largely from the novel, and Dong Fang Bubai is given a more prominent role as the primary antagonist. The following year, the producers released the film The East is Red, with Dong Fang Bubai as the main character. 
The East is Red is unrelated to the novel except for its Chinese title, Dongfang Bubai Zifeng Yung Zai Ki, which roughly translates to The Return of Dongfang Bubai. Lin's portrayal of Dongfang Bubai as a trans woman has influenced subsequent portrayals of the character. Dongfang Bubai has typically been depicted as a trans woman in television series based on the smiling proud wanderer since the 2000s. But strikingly, a 2013 adaptation TV series opted to change Dongfeng Pubai as a woman and not a castrated man. Unfortunately, the original novel source, as you might guess, treats this pretty badly. The essay collection Paper Swordsman looks at Jing Yong's novels. The essay on Smiling Proud Wanderer describes it, quote, The aura of abomination associated with evil quelling swordplay lies not in its movies, as such, but rather in the changes it affects in the person of the practitioner who undergoes a process of feminization explicitly marked as perverse, unquote. In the novel, the protagonists encounter Dong Feng, quote, seated before a makeup stand, smooth-cheeked, daubed with makeup and reeking of perfume, dressed in robes, whose style was neither that of man or woman, and whose seductive colors would have looked rather too feminine, rather too garish, even if Ying Ying had been wearing them, unquote. Anyway, this character has always struck me for the complexity of their presentation and how a highly negative original portrayal has been reworked in other media. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is not a, a wuxia thing, but uh, I just got the opportunity to go and watch The Maltese Falcon on the big screen. And The Maltese Falcon has a lot of gay subtext. Peter Lorre plays a very nearly explicitly gay character and there is a an older man and a a much younger man in a like an, a kind of an uncomfortable power dynamic who are a couple of the other characters in the movie and it's a really like complex thing especially like as you get older and as especially as I got older and was able to kind of see it more for what's going on and I, I feel like that's a lot of what's going on with this Dongfang Bubai character is that like there are characters that you can see and appreciate and even admire but are really complex I think we haven't even like reached the end of like where that cycle ends yeah and you know I haven't seen any of these movies i know the swordsman 2 is pretty high up on my list actually but the tv shows and film adaptations i'm i'm basically unfamiliar with and it seems like lowell is saying that essentially they never really give a good presentation of lgbt Mm -hmm. characters or whatever through this through this character but at the very least the nuances between the different portrayals are interesting in their complexity yeah it's really fascinating to see them like not quite break out of the the othering that making lgbt characters uh antagonists creates mm-hmm. we're just kind of getting into the point where some of the movies we might see have like the wacky friend or whatever but we're not having even in our even in western media we're just starting to see that representation being pushed for mm-hmm. um so it's interesting to see it like develop from like 1960 onwards through this one character. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of like if Blofeld or like one of these like iconic James Bond villains was a trans character Mm -hmm. and seeing how like as the age progresses, the reinterpretation of the character changes. Yeah. And it reminds me of, uh, I wonder what the cultural reaction in China was as these TV shows and movies were coming out because, you know, to use a pretty current example, the uh, live action 
Teen Titans show that's coming out and Starfire is played by a black woman and I've seen a bunch of reaction against that. Never mind that Starfire is really an orange alien, so who cares if it's being played by a black woman? But like <laughs> this sort of evolution of character and adding representation where you can find it, it's not met particularly well in the West. I wonder what it was like the first time that Dongfang Bubai went from being a gay man to being a trans woman i guess i i'm not familiar enough to know if it's like you know a trans feminine or a trans masculine person but still mm-hmm. yeah that's uh yeah it's intriguing a lowell always gives us a lot a lot to think about uh and you should definitely go check out when he talks about his game hearts of Wulin over on the gauntlet mm-hmm. and because uh, i think he's doing some interesting work there and i think he has a lot of like the same concerns that we do. Absolutely. And and maybe even doubly so for him because uh, Hearts of Wulin focuses a lot on the romantic entanglements between different characters. Uh, I've Oh, there's going to be romance in this game. Well, I'm, there's going to be romance in our game for sure. Yeah. But I think uh, we're, we're trying to balance the social and the combat side of it, whereas he's focused really ex- explicitly on the, uh, the romantic elements of it. Right, um, right. And it's so important to like make sure everyone can participate yeah. in that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, even though we keep finding all of these examples of wuxia storytelling history where there isn't good representation, if nothing else, it makes me really excited to kind of buck that trend and create some better representation in the game that we're creating. Yeah, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. I, I have uh, an enthusiasm for this project. Like Poe, I'm just a fan of this stuff, and I'm a fan of Kung Fu and Wuxia, and I like I, I just can't wait to work on it. Yeah, and we'll never quit until we find out the secret ingredient. That's right. Oh, by the way, the secret ingredient is nothing. <gasps> really? It's been inside <laughs> me the whole time? It's It's been inside you the whole time. It's uh, I took this long for you to really understand. Well, now that I know story. that, I can t- overcome any obstacle in my path. Whether Excellent. It's... And while you're doing that, and while the listeners are doing that, perhaps thanks for listening. And remember to make your kung fu stronger. Skadoosh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was well timed. I couldn't let that one escape. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Hustle. You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or on his website, mythicgazetteer.com. You can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com. You can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter or Hustle at gmail.com or on the Misdirected Mark website. Thanks for listening.